0: Welcome to
1: GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre in London, based at Holy Trinity Brompton. Mike Lloyd and Jane Williams join me, Graham Tomlin, in talking about theology, life, God, and just about everything else. Welcome to another Godpod, number 46, as we home in on our champagne 50th anniversary. Uh, Very good to have you listening, wherever you are. And um, we have uh, some of the usual crew, but you'll tell that it's not completely the usual crew, by the imposter who is standing in um, as the anchor person. Graham is not with us today. Um, This is Michael Lloyd, and uh, we also have Jane Williams, as usual. as
2: usual. And this is the imposter. Apparently. No, no
1: I, I was thinking of myself as you the Oh, I see, alright then <laughs> But if you wish to be an imposter, oh, you can no, be an imposter, be an imposter. Uh, This is Chris Tilling, who is another member of uh, the St Paul's Theological College team And uh, our New Testament lecturer It's very good to have you with us, Chris You have done this before I've done it a few times, yeah mm, It's very good to have you uh, So
0: we've given you some time off for good behaviour and for finishing your <laughs> dissertation Tell yeah. us about your dissertation, Chris, what's it about?
2: Well, um... I've only had it in the first draft thus far, I'm still waiting for my supervisor for some feedback, but uh, it's about Pauline Christology, Uh, that is, who did Paul really think Jesus was? In particular, did Paul think Jesus was God or not? And perhaps we can look into that in a bit more depth than another Godpod. I've, I've developed a different argument on the way of dealing with the debates surrounding what? this question. Why don't we just record your Viva and put
1: that up as a Godpod? <laughs> yes, pod? that's all right. <laughs> fun, well, that might it? sound
2: a bit panicked all of the way
1: through. That is not impossible. <laughs> they are meant to be public events, aren't they? Are if they? It, yes, it used to be a spectator sport. Uh, to go and l- listen to somebody being vivid on their the doctoral mm. thesis. It's rather like gladiatorial contests. But or luckily,
0: it isn't like that normally nowadays, because yeah, You should yeah. be fine. I hope not. But it, that sounds such a basic question to ask. That it
2: is, which is why it's so interesting. Yeah. I think. There is simply scholarly debate at the moment. Um, not Few would deny that in John you have what is called a divine Christology. Mm-hmm. That is, Jesus is put on the divine side of the line. Monotheism must draw between God and creatures. You have the I am sayings in John's gospel. You have um, John 1. John 1. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, you have before Abraham was, I am. That's yeah. right. And my Lord and my God, Thomas, to, and so on and so on. But with Paul, some deny that you have that kind of developed high Christology as it 's called. Um, you have a lot of subordinationist passages, for example, where Christ is subordinated to the Father in in the eschaton as well in the in the in the coming um age, one Corinthians fifteen when the Son hands everything over to the Father so that God may be all in all and so on. and on the basis of passages like that, some uh, and for other reasons, some think that Paul's Christology is a stage towards, a step towards John's Christology, but not quite there yet. Um, and dun is J- Jimmy. Dunn is a New Testament scholar who, 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 who approaches that. Morris Casey is another. Um, so there are a few scholars around. But I've um, developed an argument which I think. Um, very strongly affirms that Paul's Christology is a divine Christology. Mm. For Paul, Christ is on the divine side of the line. Monotheism must draw between God and creatures. But the way he does it is particularly interesting. But more on that and another on. time. Uh-uh. <laughs> oh, it is, it's interesting because, of course, Paul is
1: the earliest That's right. Christian writer That's that we right. have evidence for. Yeah. So uh, it would suggest that right from the start. That's right. Yeah, that's how he was seen in at least some of the Christians, early Christian yeah. circles.
0: But because we have got Chris, we've been saving up all our New Testament questions <laughs> for him. <haven't> we? <laughs> we have, because we
1: don't know anything about the Bible. <laughs> uh, and um, here at uh, HTB, um, people have been encouraged to be reading the Bible this, this year and um, to be using the Bible in the year. Uh, book or or the lectionary of the church church of england um, and we got a question in uh, from somebody um called stuart carden saying my question is what do you consider to be the comparative strengths and weaknesses of the various modern translations of the bible i've tended to use the niv uh, but i've recently read comments that suggest that its translation of paul is at some points unreliable so we thought oh we'll get Chris in on this <laughs> uh, is this true and in what sense um so what, what, what do we use? Which runs do we tend to use?
0: I am I, utterly wedded to the NRSV. Yeah. Okay. Um, and that's uh, partly because, um, as I understand it, it's the most accurate translation. It's not always the most flowing translation. Um, so I sometimes start with the NRSV and then go on to something else. Mm. Um, but... I I can't die in that particular ditch, really. Can you?
1: It's, mm. it, it, I mean, you put your finger on one of the key difficulties of translating: is is a accuracy, yeah. but also fl- making it flow, read read well, read well in public. That's right. Um, what, what about you, Chris? What do
2: you? Well, I I use the NRSV myself, the New Revised Standard Version. But I I, I do on like the
1: rare occasions you're not using the Greek and the Hebrew. The,
2: well, yes, yes, that's right. When I, on the rare occasions I use the Bible, <laughs> I I. Uh, I do like the NIV, particularly the prose, the Old Testament. It flows very well, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's got a nice balance between what are called literal and dynamic tendencies in translations. I'll explain that. The King James Version, for example, tends to be very literal. Uh, The the idioms are left untranslated, so you don't know what they mean at times. Um, And it follows even the 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 word uh, the the sentence structure of the original languages on occasions makes it very difficult to read uh, for for modern English English speakers but that's a, that's an example of a literal one and the New American Standard Bible is perhaps even even more rigid and difficult to read it's, it's very literal on the other end of the scale you've got uh, the Good News Bible uh, or even Eugene Peterson's the the Message which are are very dynamic to, uh, very flexible with the language. Trying
1: um, to get the original
2: idea, but putting it into right. a modern idiom and modern form. and That's right. As I said before, especially using Peterson's, it's so dynamic. Mm. It's wearing Speedos. It is very slippery and very, very creative and gives a very different spin on the mm. text. It, you feel like you're reading something again for the first time. The difficulty with that is, is that is that... The foreignness of the biblical text can sometimes be lost. Yeah. Uh, it makes it all sound so familiar. And that can be good, but it can also be a huge weakness because the texts are not familiar. They are written in a different age, to a different audience, with different worldviews, in a different language. And and that distance is sometimes necessary for us to really understand the text and to shock us into that's seeing right.
1: the strangeness of mm. it and, and, that's and, right. and being confronted
2: by that. And so yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's this the difference between a a dynamic and and a literal translation. And the NIV has a has a good niche, I think, in somewhere in between. Okay. Um, that said, uh, the question, uh, who, who was it? Well, um, Stuart. Stuart. Stuart raised a question about hearing things about the NIV in it's terms translation of Translation of Paul. Well, yes. I'm guessing that Stuart heard this in a Tom Wright lecture. Um, but um, It's a reasonable guess. He, he's He's probably right i've got an example here from romans chapter 3 21 and and there was there i think a a slight theological agenda in the way the niv translated paul at key key points i think perhaps you could even go as far to say that you're going to struggle to understand paul's doctrine of justification if all you read is the niv which is why it's a good idea to read different translations so verse 21 of chapter 3 You've got, but now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known. Um, well, the Greek here, thekaiosinitheu, it can mean a righteousness from God. The German has something very similar, the Luther. Um, but it might also be speaking uh, of, of God's righteousness, righteousness that belongs to God. And, and most commentators, most mo- modern translations, and I think today's NIV, the TNIV, opts for a different translation here. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, has been made known. And I think that's a very important point. But also further on down in, in verse um, 26... We've got righteousness in the verse I've just read, but then in verse 26 and 25, it starts speaking of justice and the justice of God. As, and, and that translation would lead you potentially to think that we're speaking of two different things mm. here, righteousness and justice. But it's the same in Greek. Same word. Same word. That's mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Same root. And, um, and, and that's actually use, very important. That translation. Yeah. That's yeah. right. And it's yes. very important to realize that they are the same uh, they're using the same root and the nrsv is is more helpful on this but still also doesn't get it well, entirely course, right
1: i mean every translation is an interpretation isn't that's it? right because you're trying to fix the meaning yeah. which in, in the greek or the hebrew can sometimes be ambiguous it can sometimes have two different meanings which is really difficult to express in a different yeah. language so you're always choosing you're always interpreting and, and which is why I think, as you say, it's really good to, to use more than one
2: yeah, translation.
0: But it also might be an argument for those of us who love the Bible to try harder to learn some of the biblical languages, even if we yeah. are not going to get to be you know, experts, actually just to get the sense of, of the decisions being made in translation yeah. and so on. It's really quite an important discipline, I think. And, and a little
1: Greek will go... A really long way, it really helps because you can actually look and see well, is this the same word as Mm -hmm. as there? Is it the same root or is it a different Mm -hmm. word? Where else is it used? Yeah. Uh, If I don't know what it means here, well, let's see where it's used somewhere else. And and just being able, pretty much just knowing the alphabet, will enable you to use a concordance uh, and a lexicon, that kind of thing. Yeah. Which is really helpful. Yeah.
2: And and for those who who are, you know, frightened at the thought of, of learning Greek or Hebrew, then I think it is enough to to work with a couple of translations, especially when you're doing a close study of a passage, um, if if you're that way inclined, not just to read the King James 1611, which will only give you one perspective, but also the NIV and perhaps also... The NRSV. Um, I mean, that's the translation I would recommend, the NRSV. But the NIV is really good as well. It, you know, you're really uh, going to be blessed reading the NIV. I think we need to make that clear. Mm. It's, it's not a poor translation at all, by any means. And I probably use it a bit more in my personal devotions mm. than the NRSV. Even. And, of
0: course, the Holy Spirit is free... To reach us through any translation. Amen, yeah. um, the, the, the inspiration of scripture is not in the ink on the page, but in the work of the Holy Spirit.
1: And these um, translators tend to be people who... Who've prayed. Pr- have and, yeah, prayed yeah. and yeah. thought and yeah. discussed. And it's, a, it's a joint thing, usually. Nearly, nearly always it's a joint thing. Hmm. That, um, so the kind of weirder excesses have been ironed out by a group of vote. And, uh, and people are prayed that the Spirit will continue mm. to speak through the, these texts. Yeah. We've got another question here. Um, I, I don't quite know how to pronounce. Oh, um, yes, I, I do. is <laughs> Greg Robinson, that's easy enough.
0: <laughs> well uh, done. <laughs> would you like us to translate that?
1: <laughs> I'd like us to cut that without. <laughs> uh, Greg Robinson has a question. He said, When I read the Bible, I sometimes notice that one scripture uh, seems to contradict another. He said, An example would be when the two robbers were crucified with, with Jesus. One account says they both hurled insults at Jesus, while another account says that one of the robbers rebuked the other robber for insulting Jesus. Um, Another example, he says, is in the accounts of what happened after Jesus was resurrected. Each gospel describes those days differently with a few contradictions. For example, who went to the tomb first? Who did Jesus appear to first, second, third, etc. And asks if we're able to explain these apparent contradictions. So what what do we do when we come across those? Because there are plenty of Mm. things that appear difficult to harmonise, aren't there?
0: One of the things Mm. that I find most convincing about the Gospels, actually, is that um, because if you talk to any group of people about something they've all witnessed the stories, they will tell it differently. They will have noticed different things. um, They will contradict each other. Um, Police will tell you this about an accident Mm. report. You get witness accounts and they're all slightly different. And um, it is, as I say, one of the things that makes me that makes that I find most convincing about the New Testament accounts is that their accounts of have, uh, they haven't been synchronised. People yeah. are actually telling it the way they've heard it and seen it, um, and they don't totally agree. Yeah, and, and what's
1: important to each one is different as exactly. well. Yeah. and yes. therefore they remember the things yes. that are important. I mean, we all remember the things that kind of. Impact upon us, and that depends upon what what we know, who we know, (laughs) yeah, who who we like.
0: And those, I mean, those of us who lecture or those of you who preach will know that people will come up to you afterwards and say, "Thank you so much for saying so and so." And you thought, "Did I say so and so?" (laughs) Um, Because, as you say, people are filtering it through a lens Mm -hmm. about what of what matters to them. So, I mean, I think there is actually, you know, given that we have. A number of different accounts and and a huge amount of testimony of what is going on. I think there's an extraordinary amount of agreement about the shape of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, with some really convincing disagreement. Yes,
2: yeah, and, and
1: I think one of the other things to say is that the fact that one gospel has this happening first and then something else happening, whereas the other has it the other way around or whatever, suggests that there the exact chronology is not necessarily their primary concern. Um, For instance, in John's Gospel, you have the cleansing of the temple, Jesus cleansing the temple at the beginning of the Gospel, Um, whereas in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have it just in the week before his death. Uh, And that suggests to me, some people have said, well, he must have done it twice then. But actually, it seems to me that John's just not interested in yeah, telling a chronological story at that point, he's doing it for various theological purposes right. um, to make various points at the beginning of his gospel, drawing on different material thematically rather than chronologically.
2: Yeah, well, it's not just John who does that, and, and Luke acts. Is, a, is another prime example you, of a... You say
1: Luke-Acts, you mean... The, the Gospel the of t- Luke and, 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 and Acts. And the work of the Acts. Yeah. most think length, this is lumped the, the by
2: the same author. The the same author. Right. And uh, that's also very theologically driven in the way it shapes the geography of Jesus' mission, starting off in the north, working down northern tribes, southern tribes, in Jerusalem, death and resurrection. And then in Acts, you get the movement outwards again. And this is actually manufactured to a certain degree by Luke in order to make a very important point about salvation history, how this story of Jesus ties in with uh, the story of Israel. That's an example. All Gospels have a bit of a a theological agenda, and and they they do push that. I think one one important thing to say about contradictions um, is... Is it, it is true, I and mean, some, some will say, well, they'll all vanish if you just think about it, and, and you can square a circle uh, and a triangle in every single situation. And there is a sense in which that is true. Some of the supposed contradictions do indeed vanish upon closer inspection. Yes, and Dorothy um, Sayers, for instance, does an account of the resurrection that
1: harmonises... The different accounts in terms of the order that they happen and right, that sort of thing, right. and it's
2: it's possible. Yeah, yeah, and and um, it very often it's very plausible. Um, I think the difficulty is though when it becomes um, implausible. What do you do then? Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, the um, uh, the fate of Judas, the end of the end of Matthew, and you compare that with the account that you get at the beginning of Acts. There are some ingenious ways of trying to explain the differences between the accounts, but you know, ultimately, they they're very unconvincing as far as I can see. And the question is then, well, what do you do with these? And I, I think James' point was very important. If if these texts were written later and contrived and and to to deceive by a group, then you would expect far more uniformity than you actually have. In in the gospel accounts, so I think these contradictions shouldn't shake our faith at all. Um, actually, they should help us to see that these are very real accounts, pointing to something that actually happened, um, and and also that the scriptures they come from real life, they speak about real life, they address real life, they're written by people. Uh, who really lived, and life as we know is is full of contradictions and tensions and and for that reason, I think we should expect contradictions in a text like that that God inspires as well and and it I think also has implications for
1: um, how we live together as as the church uh, part of, of reading the Bible is listening to different perspectives you know god's given us four gospels not one yeah and they're not the same and they do have different theological emphases uh, now you know those m- may be compatible um they may be in in some tension but the point is you have to listen to all of them to have your view of jesus enlarged and expanded and enriched and actually it's the same in the in the christian community as well yeah uh, there isn't just one acceptable viewpoint there's a number of different viewpoints and the way you grow as a christian is by listening uh, to those differences yeah. learning from them being enriched by them being challenged by them yeah. um, and, and being expanded in the process yeah.
0: but it is also worth just re-emphasizing that there is surprising unanimity mm. about mm. jesus yeah. yes, there <laughs> is. yes. Um, ab- about how about his impact his importance his centrality um, and so on, so so we can get very hung up about slight disagreements um of of sort of one or two historical details and forget the overwhelming testimony of the impact of jesus um and and because we sort of take that for granted, and actually we shouldn't i mean the the gospels are trying to explain why this person jesus um faith in him requires you to turn the whole world round, and that they do um with. Total unanimity yeah yeah, um, so it, I think it 's very important not to get too distracted by the the one or two disagreements from this overwhelming yeah. central agreement,
2: yeah, uh, another thought in, in line with that com- comes to mind uh, when you 're faced with these tensions and contradictions in the text, how do we square this? Some will want to press, how do we square this with the fact that God inspired the text mm. or that we believe that God inspired the text. And I'm reminded of something Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, that we know in part at the present time. Mm. Paul included himself in that. We know in part. And, and there's a sense in which uh, all of our language, all of our writing, all of our theology is provisional yes. to the day when Christ is fully revealed. And I think that the desire to want answers for everything, an absolute certainty, is a legitimate one, isn't it? it's a good desire, um, but it's a desire that will only be fulfilled when God comes again in his glory. Uh, I think that's the... The and,
0: and the thing is, I slightly suspect that when that happens, we're not going to sit him down and say, could you explain exactly <laughs> yes. the, the sequence of events after your resurrection? Um, and uh, and the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of Scripture presumably um, means that we can trust that we have what we need to yeah. know. Yeah. Yes. Um, we actually can, can trust that it's all right to be a Christian and to believe in this testimony to, to Jesus mm. and what he does for us and how uh, and his relationship with god yeah. um, and um, and leave a few fuzzy details around the edge,
1: yeah. which brings us uh, on to since we 've been talking about um, the spirit in a number of ways actually, in this, uh, these questions we 've been looking at uh, a question from somebody who has a suspicious surname, <laughs> Sam Tomlin um, ah. and he asks, "Is it possible that the spirit revealed things to, to the church fathers?" By which we mean the, the theologians of the early church, the first few centuries of the church. Is it possible that the Spirit revealed things to them that he didn't reveal to the apostles? Were the Fathers really developing the content of the apostolic age, or were new ideas being revealed? Like the Trinity, for instance. Um, I'm not saying the Fathers thought up these new ideas, but maybe the Spirit revealed them. Uh do we have any thoughts on on that? I'm sure we do. We do, obviously. <laughs> we're not usually short of opinions, anyway.
0: And one of the thoughts that, that I have, as somebody who teaches about the early church fathers, who who are um, the, the theologians who write after the New Testament period, um, is that they were all perfectly clear that they had to 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 check their theology against the New Testament. Okay. Um, so they were all perfectly clear that the New Testament is the deciding mm-hmm. factor for theology. Um, and anything that could not be found in the New Testament and wasn't consonant with what was said in the New Testament was not acceptable development of that theology. So that's a method that has been used from um, as, as the earliest times we can find Christians discussing their faith. Um, the method is to, to check it back against the witness of the of the apostles. Mm-hmm. I think
1: one of the things that John's Gospel uh, has Jesus saying is, is that the spirits will um, take... The things of Jesus and make them known mm. to you uh, there's a kind of Christ-centeredness to the work of the Spirit um, that's always pointing us back to Jesus not doing, going off doing completely independent things that have nothing to do with Jesus <laughs> always pointing us to Jesus mm. it, it's in him that God is fully revealed uh, and what the Spirit does is to help the church A, to understand that yeah. and B, to um, live it yeah. In a new context, in a new situation, so I think I would rather see not that the church fathers were given new things, bit new bits of revelation, but they were given new insight into the older revelation, mm. the revelation in Christ. There isn't any other revelation yeah. <laughs> ultimately than, yeah. than, in, than in Jesus. Um, and, but they were given new understanding of it, and that takes time to, to work out the implications of this. This quite stunning yeah. new understanding of God that came with Jesus. Mm. Uh, and the Trinity seems to me precisely an example of that. Yeah,
0: because you don't get to the doctrine of the Trinity without what happened in Jesus. There, the, there would be no reason to get there at all. Absolutely, it powerful. is the effect of the life, death, and resurrection of yeah. Jesus, yes. and his teaching and and promises of the Holy Spirit that that gets us there. Yeah,
2: and I think it's um, you could say it's it's coherent with what you have in the New Testament, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity. It's consistent with it. But it is still a translation, if you like, of, of the significance of the identity of God from one frame of reference, which was the New Testament world, to another, which involves a sort of Neoplatonism and an Aristotelian metaphysics behind it, to be technical for a moment. And so it had to, it had to change how it expressed its faith in God in that context. And the Spirit, I believe, was, was behind that, inspiring the early church to formulate their views of God. But the, the thing is, I think the Spirit is also present today, inspiring us, helping us to understand what it means to confess the triune God in our culture. Even a statement as simple as, Jesus is Lord, uh, we can all agree on that. But but what does it mean today? And And the Spirit helps us to Apply that to our lives and our worlds to conceive what that might mean and I think that's something of the ongoing work of the Spirit. It's not about new revelation out of a blue sky, but helping us to understand what it means. Mm.
0: But there have always, of course, been um, movements who believe the Holy Spirit is telling them completely new things uh, that that are not born witness to in the scriptures. Um, and to them, the, the overwhelming authority of, of church teaching has been um, that God is a consistent character mm. uh, and God will not act um, inconsistently so that... A- anything that the Holy Spirit brings um, into prominence for a particular age or a particular time will will be consistent with the character of God displayed yeah. in Scripture. Um, God doesn't contradict Himself. Yeah. Um, yeah. is one of the rules that the reformers, for example, helped us to formulate in regard yeah. to Scripture. So anything that is that that, that the Holy Spirit says to um, Christians today uh, should deepen their understanding of 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 that apostolic witness in in the in the Scriptures and not. Um, Call it into further question.
2: Hmm.
1: And I think with the the Trinity in particular, there's also uh, a sense that it—you can't say everything that you want to say in the New Testament without the doctrine of the Trinity—and it forced them gropingly and over a long period of time, and after much debate and discussion and argument, and worse than argument. into this way of understanding God, into this new understanding of who God is, because otherwise you have to lock bits off Mm. the New Testament and they find to hold the whole thing together, this is the framework that you need. Absolutely,
0: so it's not that they sit down and think, let's think up a nice complicated doctrine that will make sense um, of of the philosophical ideas of our day, it's the impact of their experience of Jesus that required them, as you say Chris, to Mm. to reshape their understanding of God.
1: Mm. Just like Difficult scientific theories are not made up by people like Einstein just to baffle (laughs) students Uh, Because they're done because the reality they're trying to describe is complex and 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 obviously God himself is Mm. A fairly rich kind of being (laughs) and therefore you wouldn't expect To be able to get your mind around him Mm. Immediately immediately, quickly and easily and without effort Well Thank you um, for your questions that do keep them coming in uh, do write to us at um www no don't don't really because that's not an email address is it um i think it's uh, yes
0: just keep emailing <laughs> just, just keep emailing email. us
1: on the email address that you've already got
0: <laughs> if or, you are listening to this <laughs> we we'll
1: definitely cut that <laughs> <laughs> but um chris thank you very much for joining us Hello, it's actually. been really good to have you all um call
2: cool input
0: and we we'll look forward to um, yeah, your return visit to, to tell us all about <laughs> so, the dissertation.
2: That would be very good. Do a practice viber on me. <laughs> yeah, oh, okay. Don't be too
0: mean.
2: <laughs> and thank
1: you, Jane.
0: Thank you, Michael. Beautifully chaired, if I may say so. You, you yes. may say
1: so. Um, that's always encouraged, you yeah, know, some kind of mutual back scratching <laughs> in the SPTC. Uh, and thank you for listening. Goodbye.
0: That was Godpod a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.